This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. Hey guys, it's Bobby Bones. I host the Bobby Bones Show, and I'm pretty much always sleepy because I wake up at three o'clock in the morning. A couple hours later, I get all my friends together, and we get into a room, and we do a radio show. We share our lives, we tell our stories, we try to find as much good in the world as we possibly can, and we look through the news of the day that you'll care about. Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music, too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. We've had kind of a running theme of landmark Supreme Court decisions on the show. Yeah, they come up from time to time. Yeah, we have not gotten to possibly the most notorious one in all of United States history, which is Dred Scott versus Sanford. That was decided in 1857. So I had already put this episode on the schedule to record today when, by coincidence, it suddenly became very timely. Because on June 26th of 2018, the U.S. Supreme Court issued its decision in Trump versus Hawaii, which upheld Proclamation Number 9645. That's the revised travel ban that uh, restricts entry into the United States from Iran, Libya, North Korea, Somalia, Syria, Venezuela, and Yemen. And in response to that decision, Representative Keith Ellison of Minnesota compared the decision in Trump versus Hawaii to Dred Scott. And then so did David D. Cole of the ACLU, who wrote an editorial that was published in the Washington Post that brought up both Dred Scott and Korematsu versus United States. And we talked about that one in our episode on Executive Order 9066. So suddenly, searching Dred Scott on Google was bringing up thousands of news headlines instead of history sites and archives of Supreme Court decisions. But the facts of this case itself are unchanged, even in spite of all that news coverage. So rather than shelving the topic for later, as for some reason too much of a hot button, we're going to stick to my original plan, talk about the court decision that ruled the enslaved Africans and their descendants weren't and could never be citizens of the United States, whether they were free or not. And we're also going to talk about the people who were seeking their freedom in this case because it wasn't just about Dred Scott. A lot of times this is summed up as like, Dred Scott was enslaved and he was suing for his freedom. It was also about his wife Harriet and their daughters, Eliza and Lizzie. And this is accidentally a two-parter. So we're going to talk about it for two episodes. (laughs) 
accidental two-parter. To get back to the more serious matter of the story, we know very little about Dred Scott's background. He was born sometime around 1800 in Virginia, probably in Southampton County, and his earliest owners that we know about were Peter Blow and Elizabeth Taylor Blow, who were planters. But it is not clear whether he was enslaved to them from birth or whether they purchased him sometime later. By 1818, though, Dred Scott was definitely part of the Blows' enslaved workforce. In 1818, that's when the Blows moved to Alabama, where they continued to work in agriculture. They moved with their six children and with several enslaved people, including Dred Scott. While living in Alabama, the Blows also had two more children. Then in 1830, the Blows decided to give up farming. They moved to St. Louis, Missouri, where they opened a boarding house known as the Jefferson Hotel and they took some of their enslaved labor force with them once again, including Dred Scott. Elizabeth Blow died in 1831, and Peter Blow died the next year. And around the time of Peter Blow's death, Dred Scott was sold to Dr. John Emerson. There's no surviving documentation of this sale, and we don't really know whether Peter Blow handled it himself before he died or whether his heirs handled it as part of his estate after his death. One of the Blow sons, Henry Taylor Blow, testified in court that his father had sold Dred Scott. But there's not a paper trail to back it up, and the timeline actually suggests that the transaction might have taken place later after Peter Blow had died. Dr. Emerson was a surgeon, and his background is also a little bit unclear. He got his medical degree from the University of Pennsylvania in 1824, and it seems as though he was either born in Pennsylvania or that he immigrated there from Ireland. Regardless, though, as far as we know, he lived and worked in Pennsylvania for most of his life before entering the U.S. Army as a surgeon. In 1833, he was deployed to Fort Armstrong, Illinois, which is referred to as Rock Island in court documents. Emerson probably purchased Dred Scott in St. Louis on the way to Illinois to act as his personal servant and to provide manual labor on a land claim that Emerson staked out for a cabin. It was extremely common for army officers to take slaves with them to the forts and outposts where they were stationed. Often these were in very remote locations, without any sort of white community or settlement to provide a civilian labor force to handle things like cooking and laundry and manual labor. This practice included taking enslaved people into places where slavery was outlawed under state law or under the terms of the Northwest Ordinance or the Missouri Compromise. So as a quick refresher... The Northwest Ordinance was passed in 1787. It established a government for the territory northwest of the Ohio River, along with a process for how parts of that territory could be admitted to the Union as states. And the Northwest Ordinance was clear on the subject of slavery. Quote, There shall be neither slavery nor involuntary servitude in the said territory, otherwise than in the punishment of crimes, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted. The Northwest Ordinance did allow for fugitive slaves to be returned to their owners, though. The Missouri Compromise was passed in 1820, and we have talked a lot about it on the show, particularly in our episode about the Honey War. The Missouri Compromise allowed Missouri to be admitted into the Union as a slave state, while Maine was also admitted as a free state to preserve the balance between the slave and the free states. The Missouri Compromise declared that slavery and involuntary servitude, other than in punishment for a crime, would not be permitted in territory that was north of 36 degrees and 30 minutes north latitude. 
So Emerson was being sent to Fort Armstrong, Illinois, where slavery had previously been outlawed under the Northwest Ordinance and was also mostly outlawed in the state constitution when Illinois joined the Union in 1818, although there were a number of exceptions. Illinois didn't fully outlaw slavery except in the punishment for a crime until 1848, after many of the events in these episodes that we're doing uh, had already happened. But in spite of that prohibition, Dr. Emerson was taking an enslaved person with him, as were other people that were stationed there. Emerson probably stopped in St. Louis specifically to buy a slave or made it a point to do it while he was already in St. Louis for other reasons. Since it sits along the Mississippi River, St. Louis was one of the easiest cities to reach from a lot of the nation's more remote territory. It was a frequent stopping point on the way to the frontier, So the city had a really thriving slave trade, selling enslaved Africans to members of the military as they either passed through or came back to Missouri for that purpose. Emerson was not from a slave state. Pennsylvania had passed a gradual emancipation law in March of 1780. By the time Emerson finished medical school, there were fewer than 200 people still enslaved in the state. It doesn't seem as though he was from a slave-owning family, and as far as we know, Dred Scott is the only person he ever enslaved. There are questions about whether he later enslaved Scott's wife and children, and we're going to get to those in just a bit. So this is not at all to be extremely clear, to suggest that, oh, he only enslaved one person, so it wasn't that bad. It's more that slave states had a whole system of social order that revolved around slavery and it dictated how white people and slaves behaved around each other. But Emerson had grown up in Pennsylvania, where slavery was not nearly as much of a visible daily presence as it was in the slave states. And this almost certainly affected how he treated Dred Scott. In some ways, the amount of autonomy and respect that Emerson granted to Scott was more in line with what would be extended to a free man, but legally, Scott was still definitely Emerson's property. Emerson remained at Fort Armstrong until it was abandoned on May 4th, 1836. At that point, he was transferred to Fort Snelling in Wisconsin Territory in what's now Minnesota, which was at the time free territory. We'll get to that part after a sponsor break. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep-dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand, and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal, and they're candid, and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, it's Bobby Bones. I host The Bobby Bones Show. 
And I'm pretty much always sleepy because I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. A couple hours later, I get all my friends together, and we get into a room, and we do a radio show. We share our lives, we tell our stories, we try to find as much good in the world as we possibly can, and we look through the news of the day that you'll care about. Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music, too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app. Today, Fort Snelling, Minnesota is practically next door to Minneapolis-St. Paul International Airport. But in 1836, it was pretty much in the middle of nowhere. As we said before the break, there were no white settlements anywhere nearby. Most of the indigenous peoples in the area were also nomadic, and they didn't have permanent settlements or seasonal camps near the fort either. Also, the United States being at war with a lot of the indigenous population during this time would have made that an unlikely workforce if such a community had existed. That's really an understatement, and it's also a whole other topic outside the scope of these episodes. Virtually everyone in Fort Snelling was a soldier, an officer, an officer's wife, or an enslaved African, and nearly all of the officers enslaved at least one person. Most of the enslaved Africans had been brought along with officers from their previous postings in slave states and territories, or they had been purchased in St. Louis. It was at Fort Snelling that Dred Scott met Harriet Robinson, who was also from Virginia. She was enslaved to Major Lawrence Tolliver, Tolliver was the Indian agent for the Upper Mississippi Valley region. The Indian agent was a government official who acted as a liaison between the United States government and the indigenous population. Tolliver was also the Justice of the Peace, and the title Major was really honorific. He had served in the military, but he resigned when he was appointed Indian agent. So everybody still called him Major, but he was not an actual Major anymore. In 1836 or 1837, when Harriet was about 17 and Dredd was about 40, they got married. They had an actual civil ceremony officiated by Major Tolliver. It was not common at all for enslaved people to have a formal and legally recognized marriage, nor was it common at all for a justice of the peace to officiate a marriage between enslaved people. This was so unusual that a number of historians have argued that by performing this civil marriage, Tolliver was recognizing Harriet and possibly also Dredd as free. Yeah, the Justice of the Peace did, just, just did not perform marriages of enslaved people. Like, enslaved people weren't regarded as having any kind of right to marriage, and marriages between enslaved people were not legally sanctioned in any way. So this was highly unusual. Yeah, when we've talked about enslaved people getting married on the podcast before, it is usually a quiet, private affair. It certainly does not usually involve their owners in any way, let alone an efficient. Yeah, and even if their owners are involved in some way, it's not usually something that affords any kind of legal status or protection in any way. So this was like, this was not what normally happened at all. After their wedding, Harriet and Dred Scott lived together as a married couple, with both of them working for Dr. Emerson, but it's really not clear whether Emerson considered Harriet to be his property. Like we said, it's not clear whether Tolliver was essentially freeing her with this whole marriage that he officiated. But Emerson did not stay in Fort Snelling for very long after that. He had been asking for a transfer to St. Louis for quite some time, and that transfer was finally granted. He left on October 20th, 1837. In warm weather, people typically traveled between St. Louis and Fort Snelling by steamboat. 
But by October of 1837, the upper Mississippi River was already frozen over in a lot of places. So to get to his much-requested new assignment, Emerson had to travel by sled and canoe. It was not feasible for him to take the Scots with him, so he left them behind. Although he seems to have left them essentially unsupervised, they almost certainly continued to work for other officers at the fort during this time. This is one of several places in the Scots' lives that people ask why they didn't take this opportunity to escape. After all, Dr. Emerson was gone, and they'd also been given some degree of autonomy. They both had the freedom to come and go from the fort as long as they got all of their work done. In this case, the answer is really simple. This was a remote part of Wisconsin Territory in late October. If they had left, they would have had nowhere to go. Getting to the nearest permanent settlement would have required days of hard travel through frigid weather with really little to survive off of on the way. It also wasn't likely that they would have been able to find refuge with the area's indigenous peoples who were facing rampant hunger and poverty. At about this same time, an enslaved woman named Rachel, who had been at Fort Snelling, successfully sued for her freedom in St. Louis. The Scots, especially Harriet, probably heard about this, but it would be almost 10 years before they filed a similar suit themselves. Soon after arriving in St. Louis, Dr. Emerson was transferred to Louisiana. There, he met and married Eliza Irene Sanford, who was known as Irene. And in 1838, he sent for the Scots to join him and his new wife in Louisiana. Once the Mississippi River had thawed, the Scots traveled by steamboat to Louisiana, going from free to slave territory. And by this point, Harriet was pregnant. But almost immediately after the Scots arrived in Louisiana territory, Emerson turned them all around and went back to St. Louis, and from there, back to Fort Snelling again. Harriet Scott gave birth to a daughter, Eliza, aboard the steamboat on the way there, north of the dividing line between slave and free territory that was set down in the Missouri Compromise. As a side note, we don't know who, if anyone, Eliza Scott was named for. A lot of people assume it was for Dr. Emerson's new wife, but the Scots knew a lot of Elizabeths, including another enslaved woman at Fort Snelling. It could have been, in some way, for all of those Elizabeths. (laughs) It could have been for none of the Elizabeths. They might have just liked nicknames for Elizabeth. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, that's one of those things where I always feel like it's a decision that you can't ever really know because you can't unravel a person's thought process back to where it began. So it's hard to just define and say, oh, it was named for... Well, maybe. Well, and the the assumption that they named their baby after their owner's new wife is kind of gross. Like, it... If that's documented somewhere, that's fine. But the fact that so many people just assume, oh, they must have named the baby for their owner's new wife, like, that's kind of a gross assumption to make. Even without all of the layers of grossness of slavery involved, just assuming people's intentions and naming their children is weird to me. (laughs) So then to add on to it, all of that gross layering, I'm like, why? Why you got to do that? Um... The next winter, Dr. Emerson arranged for the Scots to have their own quarters at Fort Snelling, including their own stove. It was, once again, not common at all for enslaved people to have their own quarters, and stoves were in very short supply. They were so scarce that when Emerson asked for one for the Scots, the quartermaster refused, and in the ensuing argument, the quartermaster punched Emerson in the face. Emerson left and then came back and threatened the quartermaster with his pistols. 
This ultimately led to Emerson being arrested, but he did get that stove for the Scots. This is another thing people point to that suggests that at Fort Snelling, Emerson and others may have considered the Scots to be free. Yeah, getting into a fistfight about a stove for your enslaved workforce was also not what would be expected of a white person. So, on May 29th of 1840, Dr. Emerson was transferred to Florida because of the ongoing Seminole Wars, along with nearly all the other military personnel at Fort Snelling. In the four years since the Scots had first arrived in Wisconsin Territory, the fort had become a little less remote. A collection of squatter cabins had been built up around it. But at the same time that the government cleared out the fort for the Seminole Wars, it also decided to evict all the squatters and burn down all the cabins. The burning of the cabins meant that the Scots would have nowhere to stay if they tried to stay behind. They also would have had no way to support themselves there. So, once again, they had little choice but to travel south into slave territory with the Emersons. They got to St. Louis, where they stayed with Mrs. Emerson, and were also hired out to work for other people. In St. Louis, the Scots had another daughter, Lizzie. They'd also had two sons who did not survive infancy. For the next few years, the Scott family were all together in St. Louis. They made friends, including reconnecting with some of the Blow family. That was the people that had owned Dred Scott from the time he was young, possibly from his birth. By this point, the Blow family was kind of full of contradictions. Several of them had made connections among St. Louis's abolitionist community, but some of them also continued to own slaves themselves. Some of the Blow's daughters had also married into prominent, affluent families. All these connections, though, in spite of all their contradictions, would eventually help the Scots sue for their freedom, and the Blow family would help finance their court cases. Harriet also joined the Second African Baptist Church of St. Louis. It isn't clear if Dredd was a member, but their church family was a source of support for their eventual legal fight as well. In 1843, Dr. Emerson died of tuberculosis. He had known that he was dying, and he had written out a will. This will made no mention of Dred or Harriet Scott or their daughters Eliza and Lizzie. And at first, Emerson's widow seems to have not freed them, but just sort of left them on their own. It was more like she neglected them than that she let them go. But at some point, Irene Emerson seems to have decided that the Scots belonged to her, even though they were not mentioned in her husband's will. She started hiring out their labor to other people around St. Louis. And hiring out was a common way for slave owners to make money. They would essentially rent out their enslaved workers and then keep any money that they earned for themselves. It was while working as hired labor that the Scots petitioned for their own freedom, which we will talk about after a sponsor break. Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited, and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. (laughs) Yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's not a calm situation at all. Uh, Our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations, who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah, and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the 
Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too. Hi, everybody. My name is Max Homa. And I'm Shane Bacon, and we want to tell you about our new podcast called Get a Grip with Max Homa and Shane Bacon. I'm a PGA Tour champion and a guy that has dreamed his whole life to be on the largest stage, compete in the biggest events, and have a chance at making history in a sport that has been a bit of a roller coaster for me as a professional. I know the only reason you chase this dream of being a pro is you could one day become a crossover media darling. You, too, could be a co-host of a podcast. And that dream is now a reality. Max and I will take you through life on the PGA Tour, and our goal is to allow you in as we both pay our respective rents and bills from this silly sport that we can't help but love. So do us a favor. Download and subscribe to Get a Grip with Max Homa and Shane Bacon. It's our opportunity to bring to life the conversations we are already having, the rants and tangents we will tackle, and the best and worst parts of being a professional golfer. Way more best parts, bro. Listen and follow Get a Grip with Max Homa and Shane Bacon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. In early 19th century Missouri, enslaved people were property, but they were also, in a very limited sense, persons with rights. There were laws on the books that, at least in theory, protected enslaved people from cruelty or murder, and an enslaved person who was accused of a felony was entitled to a jury trial. Obviously, Whether these laws were enforced, totally a different subject, and whether that trial would have been fair, definitely in question, but those laws did exist. And a person who was wrongfully enslaved also had the right to sue for freedom in court, thanks to a law that had been passed in 1824. Between 1824 and about 1840, these sorts of lawsuits became fairly common, and it was also fairly common for them to be successful. Missouri law incorporated the idea of once free, always free. If an enslaved person went or was taken to free territory or otherwise became free, they stayed free. They did not become enslaved again if they traveled into a slave state. This precedent was what had allowed the woman named Rebecca, who had been enslaved at Fort Snelling, to sue for her freedom. And Dred Scott, along with his family, had lived in free territory. He had been there for 12 years. This seemed like an open and shut case. But by the early 1840s, the subject of slavery had become far more contentious nationwide. Missouri had become a lot more hostile to Black people in general and more fearful of the impact that a free Black population might have on a slave society. In 1840, Missouri passed a law banning free Black people from entering the state. And all Black people already in the state had to get a license to be there. So by the time Dredd and Harriet Scott each filed a petition in the circuit court of St. Louis to try to gain their freedom from Irene Emerson, the tide had really turned against them in a lot of ways. Successful suits for freedom were not nearly as common, and more and more laws were putting Black residents, both free and enslaved, at a disadvantage. They filed their petitions on April 6, 1846, and by that point, the Scots' position was no longer tenable. Dred Scott was 50, which was considered elderly for an enslaved person. The average life expectancy for enslaved men was not even 35. 
He also had tuberculosis, and he really couldn't work any longer. His age and his health made him a liability, especially since Harriet, Eliza, and Lizzie were considered to be very valuable enslaved property. Also, when Dr. Emerson had been alive, he seems to have treated both Dredd and Harriet with some degree of autonomy and respect, but his widow had been born in Virginia. She had been raised in the South. Her family was generally very pro-slavery. So Irene had grown up in that entrenched social system that we mentioned earlier, which had strict rules about how white people interacted with slaves. She clearly did not have the same approach to the Scots that her late husband had. Between 1843 and 1846, Irene Emerson hired the Scots labor out to a variety of other people in and around St. Louis, and it was clear that her income was a lot more important than their treatment. There's another factor that probably encouraged the Scots to petition for freedom. Eliza Scott was about eight, an age at which it was typical for enslaved girls to be sold away from their families. Her parents were probably motivated by the fear that if they did not sue for their freedom now, they could be permanently separated from her. Simultaneously, petitioning for freedom was a huge risk. Even though, at least before 1840, a lot of the suits had been successful, it was a long and difficult process, and there was no guarantee that it would go their way. Enslaved people were also rarely released on their own recognizance during these trials. They typically wound up either imprisoned during the proceedings or sent back to the owners that they were trying to secure their freedom from. Even though the law theoretically protected people from retaliation when they filed suit, retaliation was still really common. So first, Dred Scott offered to purchase himself and his family. Irene Emerson refused. Harriet and Dred turned to the Blow family and to their church congregation for help. Neither of them could read or write, so this help involved everything from finding legal representation to documenting their case to paying for all of it. John M. Crum of the St. Louis Circuit Court granted the Scots' petition to try to seek their freedom. The Scots' daughters weren't included in the petition since if their mother was free, then they also were free. Under the terms of that 1824 law, quote, the declaration shall be in the common form of a declaration for false imprisonment and shall contain an averment that the plaintiff, before and at the end time of committing of the grievances, was and still is a free person and that the defendant held and still holds him in slavery. In other words, the petitioner had to prove they were free, but that someone was imprisoning them falsely. And to that end, Irene Emerson was indicted on charges of assault and battery and unlawful imprisonment. She entered a not guilty plea. Because of a series of fires and epidemics, the Scots' actual trial didn't take place for more than a year. At the trial, the Scots' attorney, F.B. Murdoch, called witnesses to establish that the Scots had lived for years in free territory and that now, in Missouri, Irene Emerson was enslaving them and hiring out their labor. A man named Samuel Russell testified that he had hired Dred Scott's labor from Emerson. But during cross-examination, Russell testified that he had not personally made those arrangements. His wife had done it, and he wasn't actually there to witness it when she did. His testimony that he had hired the Scots labor from Emerson was dismissed as hearsay. This was a total shock to everyone, including the Scots' attorney. Russell's testimony under cross-examination did not match up at all with what he'd said in an earlier deposition. 
and what they thought he would say on the stand. The jury issued its verdict on June 30th, 1847, quote, The said defendant is not guilty in manner and form, as the plaintiff hath in his declaration complained against her. In other words, Irene Emerson was not enslaving the Scots. And this was really something of a technicality. If Emerson wasn't enslaving the Scots, then they had no cause to petition for their freedom. The Scots got a new attorney, Samuel M. Bay. And on July 24th, 1847, Bay filed a deposition that outlined all the discrepancies in the earlier case. He submitted new testimony that proved that Emerson was enslaving the Scots, and he requested a new trial. That request for a new trial was granted by a judge named Alexander Hamilton. When Irene Emerson tried to appeal Hamilton's decision to the Missouri Supreme Court, she was denied. A whole second suit against Emerson was also drawn up during this time period, but it was dropped because it contained the same charges as the case that was being set up for a new trial. At this point, Irene Emerson took the step of having the Scott family put in the sheriff's custody. The Scott family remained in the custody of the St. Louis County Sheriff from March 17, 1848 until March 18, 1857. That is nine years. This didn't mean they were imprisoned, though. It meant that the sheriff was the one hiring them out and collecting their pay. The Scott's case was retried on January 12, 1850 in the St. Louis Circuit Court. This time, the verdict was that Dredd and Harriet Scott were free. And since Harriet was free, their daughters were as well. Scott had, by the jury's ruling, been free since 1833, when Dr. Emerson first took him to the free state of Illinois. This could have been the end of it. There would have been no Dred Scott versus Sanford. And since the Supreme Court's decision in Dred Scott versus Sanford pushed the United States much closer to the Civil War, that could have radically altered the course of American history. But that wasn't the end of it. We're going to talk about what happened next in our next episode of the podcast. Do you have a little bit of listener mail to tide us over before then? I do. This is from Melixa. I really hope I am pronouncing that right. Melixa writes, I have been listening to your podcast for the last three or four years. I teach history, and I use your program in some of my classes. I am Puerto Rican, currently living in New York, and listening to your podcast brought all kinds of memories of my childhood. My 93-year-old grandma grew up in Laris, Puerto Rico, not far from Utuado. Her family grew coffee and actually probably migrated from Spain because of the coffee bonanza in the second half of the 19th century. This was, of course, before 1898. So for them, it was devastating. Her father used to tell her that San Suriaco was so bad that it even uprooted the sweet potatoes. Of course, I think this is an exaggeration passed down decades after the fact. I guess it illustrates how bad it was for them. San Felipe was bad, but not as bad as San Siriaco, while Santa Clara, according to her father, was a breeze. Thanks for doing amazing research. Thanks for your great job. Thank you for sending this email. Uh, the sweet potato crop might actually have been destroyed, um, maybe not necessarily uprooted, uh, but with all of the flooding and landslides that went on during Hurricane San Siriaco, it would have been very easy for maybe not the entire sweet potato crop to be destroyed, but like big parts of it. So that... Might not be an exaggeration at all. Uh, so thank you for sending us this note. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast or history podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And then we're all over social media at Missed in History. That is our Facebook and our Twitter and our Pinterest and our Instagram. 
you can come to our website, which is mythinhistory.com, and you can find show notes of all the episodes Holly and I have worked on together. The show notes for this podcast will include links to hundreds of pages of court testimony. I guess really court opinions, not so much as testimony. You can also find us an archive of every episode we have ever done. And you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever else you like to get podcasts. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. We are going to Italy. After the success of last year's trip to Paris, we are planning another similar trip, still with defined destinations, this time to Rome and Florence. Yeah, we are going to spend a week exploring some amazing things. We're going to have city tours of both Rome and Florence. We're going to see the Roman Colosseum, the Vatican Museum, and the Sistine Chapel, St. Peter's Basilica, Vatican City. This is just a tiny fraction of all the stuff we're going to get to do. Yeah, it's May 14th to 21st, 2020. And to get more information, go to defineddestinations.com and scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class. The richest, most powerful place on earth. A fiction podcast. Duman Bay. On an epic scale. Power is everything. Power gives everything. We have to get away from this place. Tuman Bay is our destiny. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tuman Bay. Be sharp and die for Tuman Bay! Listen to all episodes of Tuman Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tuman Bay.